have another book called Greater Bible Knowledge uh, by a brother named Wayne Jackson who uh, passed away, uh, it was either very early this year or late last year, late last year. And um, uh, Wayne Jackson, he lived in California for a number of years, ChristianCourier.com, some of you may have heard of. Uh, a lot of very good material. He's a, uh, called the king of conciseness. He would be able to just uh, um, give you a very helpful analysis of something that would take somebody else 10,000 words. He would do it in seven. I mean, he just uh, was uh, masterful at that. And Greater Bible Knowledge was a book that um, I read after becoming a Christian, and it was a fantastic read to understand the overall uh, structure of the Bible and understand the, the uh, scheme of redemption is what the classic name of it is. It was such a helpful book in understanding God's Word. And then there's another book uh, called Turning Points, Pivotal Moments in God's History. As I understand it, the ladies' class has recently uh, utilized portions of this book, um, maybe again last year, and that is written by uh, Steve Lloyd, who's the director of the Southwest School of Bible Studies. And his book also was designed as, a, uh, as an evangelistic tool uh, to help people to see that they can actually understand God's Word. All three of these books by all three of these men point to one basic idea that God's Word can be understood and that it should be understood. But these books also imply a problem. You know, I'll put it this way. I used to grow up, oh, I, I did grow up, uh, not used to, I still am, I guess. But I grew up near a farming community, and uh, there was a town not too far away, uh, railroads all over the place in southeastern Colorado. There was one town in particular uh, where when you'd cross the railroad tracks, there was a sign, and that sign said, do not park on tracks. You know, that seems like an obvious thing, but do you know why they had to put that sign there? It's because someone parked on the tracks. And these books, they were written not because the, these gentlemen had nothing else to do and so they just decided to waste their time, but they saw a problem, they saw a struggle in and out of the church and that understanding scripture can be difficult. Um, we live in a time just as a nation where um, biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high. Uh, people do not know the Bible, and that's just going to become uh, worse and worse in some ways as our nation goes the way that it seems to be going. Uh, but we want to ensure that what we are doing uh, in the church is building up Bible studiers. Uh, there are old uh, stories about how uh, members of the church knew their Bible so well. Uh, there's even one account. I'd really like to find the actual historical where it happened, but uh, there's one account of uh, they couldn't find a Bible in a courtroom when it was time to swear on the Bible, uh, be sworn in. And uh, there was a member of the church there, and so they just used him because that was close enough to having the whole Bible. Uh, I mean, we are a people of the book. It is something we, we talk about having no creed. We just simply have God's word, no man-made creeds. Uh, 
And what is really wonderful about studying God's Word is you can't exhaust what is inside. There are some books that you read, and you might read them two or three times, but eventually you're going to be exhaust what is in them. The person who wrote it may have been brilliant, but they've got nothing on God and His omniscient mind. One other uh, uh, story in 2009... I was blessed to hear a man who preached his first sermon in 1929. That's 80 years. 80 years this brother had been preaching. How many times he had combed through his Bible that was well-worn and probably his fifth or sixth or maybe even tenth or twelfth Bible uh, through the years just for preaching meetings and things like that, I don't know. But at age 96, this man had been preaching longer than I think most of us in here uh, have been alive. We don't have anybody over that age, right? Over 96. He's been uh, at that point in time. How about just preaching 80 years? I'm not going to ask anyone 81, you know, raise your hand. But uh, think about that for just a moment. 80 years of preaching. And he wasn't finished, by the way. He, He passed away in 2013. Um, and at 96 years old, I, I got to hear him preach, and he said, you know, as I was reading this the other day, it never occurred to me the connection between this passage and that passage. <laughs> I thought, you've got to be kidding me. You are, you have been preaching for 80 years, studying the Bible longer than that, but you've been preaching for 80 years, and you're still learning new things. See, we can never, we can spend another 80 lifetimes and not exhaust the riches of God's Word. We have a peace of the mind of the infinite God. So tonight, as I mentioned, it's twofold. Uh, We're going to just do kind of, for those who have been in the Annex class, this will be kind of a reminder and a refresher for entering into this next quarter anyways and continuing on with some of the methodology uh, that we're going through to effectively study God's Word. But also for everyone in here, um, I mentioned this at the beginning, at the outset, this hopefully is an encouragement to you, um, uh, especially this audience tonight. I know you're Bible studiers, and so hopefully what we see here will help just kind of uh, encourage and build up uh, what is already there and Uh, hopefully encourage you to open God's Word uh, more and more. So the first thing that we're going to do, we're going to give that brief overview, and then we're going to look at a particular study of what we've been doing, what we started last week called a thematic study. So when we talk about Bible study, all Bible study, no matter what kind of method you read in some other book or some preacher, seems to boil down to these three ideas, observation, interpretation, application. Uh, when you look at any kind of Bible study, it's going to boil down to these three basic categories and in this order. And it makes a lot of sense um, because when you start getting it out of order, it doesn't make any sense. Try to apply what you don't observe or interpret. Well, first you need to know what's there and you need to know what it means. And isn't that often the danger, in fact, of of, of people who twist God's Word is uh, they either don't observe something properly or they do not interpret something properly? How many times would Jesus have to correct the ideas of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees? In fact, with the Sadducees in particular, He would say, you do err 
You were wrong, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. They misunderstood, whether by interpretation or observation. How many times would Jesus say, have you not read? Have you not read? And when you look at these three sections, it really is a nice, simple way to just remember how this takes place and, and um, uh, just kind of breaking down into some kind of mi- more minor sections. Uh, when we talk about observation and interpretation and application, observation is all about reading. It's all about looking at the text. I know this is going to be real small on this screen. We've printed these out before if anyone wants Uh, this kind of uh, thing here. Um, It can be helpful, but it talks about different kinds of reading, reading repeatedly, for example. Uh, Again, God's Word has staying power. You're not going to exhaust it. Constant repetition is so helpful in reading Scripture. Uh, A couple of others on here besides reading repeatedly, something like reading imaginatively, and that doesn't mean a purple hippo um, or a... a, uh, spiky leprechaun or whatever you can just come up with in your, in your head, what it means is you think with a sanctified imagination. How many pictures would Jesus paint for us in the parables? Imagine him as he is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, consider the lilies of the field. You think he just had them sitting in a classroom and close their eyes and they were picturing lilies? He is able to use a visual and, and, and see it, or the birds in the air. When we talk about reading Scripture imaginatively, it means reading with your mind about what is happening, building this picture in your head. But reading, reading, reading Scripture, that is the biggest thing that we can do. It is so important to do. And when we read, there's three big sections of, of this observation step. First, you observe the big picture. You've got to kind of know what the, what, what the big thing is about, whether it be a passage or a book as a whole. As a classic example and one that we used in our class, look at Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Like I said, we are getting into Philippians a little bit. Philippians 2, when we look at this broad, this big picture of Philippians, uh, specifically chapter 2, so you've got the big picture of Philippians, which you have phrases like joy and gospel repeated again and again. You have partnership repeated uh, several times. Uh, but remember, Paul's in prison, and again, you'll talk about all of that, I'm sure, in class if you haven't already. Um, but Philippians 2, if you get the big picture of Philippians 2, it, it, it's, it's pretty weighty. If you look, uh, the first four verses uh, uh, starts to shift, in fact, the first word in our song and in your Bible, therefore, if there's any, Right? consolation in Christ or encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he shifts into that big, massive section, verses 5 all the way through verse 11, of Jesus as the prime example of what he has just talked about. The prime example of humility. The God of heaven, Jesus, he left heaven. Father's still there. But he left heaven. He took all of his dignity and, and rights as God. And he humbled himself. And he became obedient. You have Jesus, the prime example of humility. But then, in verses 12, all the way through verse 18, Paul uses himself as an example of humility. Now, I'll argue this, that Paul was inspired so he could do that. I'm, it'd be hard for Logan to say, hey, you guys need to follow me because I'm so humble. Uh, but Paul, you start looking at his life, and it was only in humility that he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. But Paul, he is an example in verses 12 through 18, and he's an example of humility. And then verse 19 through 24, you have Timothy who's an example of humility. And then verse 25, through the end of the chapter, verse 30, you have Epaphroditus as an example of humility. The whole chapter starts off, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, and if there's any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, being like-minded and having this humility. And he says, look to Jesus he says, look at my example, look at Timothy's example, look at Epaphroditus' example. It's all about humility. That's the big picture of chapter 2. And when you look at the big picture, you get a sense of where he's going. But the big picture is not enough because there's a whole lot of words in there, there's a whole lot of structure uh, that needs to be looked at too. So you have the big picture... And then you have individual parts, the relationship between words and ideas to each other in the passage, uh, uh, comparisons, contrasts, repetitions. When you see those, that is the structure of the text. In fact, you see some repetition right, uh, off, uh, right at the start. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, you see the if, if, if. Um, it really comes out in the New King James because it says, if, 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 there's a repetition there. And that, is, that helps build this structure in the text. Um, and then you have the, the fine details, the particulars, the who, what, when, where, why, how. Do you see how some of these are going to be overlapping? You know, obviously, as you see the big picture, you're going to start asking those and isn't that what Bible study is, is asking questions of the text? What's the difference between Bible reading and Bible studying? It'd be asking good questions of the text. Passive reading, we'll read a, a menu at a restaurant. Passive reading, we'll peruse the, the news on our phones or online or, you know, phone, somebody has a newspaper. 
but active reading, reading that engages the mind, reading that, that, that focuses on what's going on, it's going to ask questions. And so you're asking who, what, when, where, why, how. You're asking are there words that are repeated? Are there um, unusual words? You know, if we see the word sanctification in, uh, in the text, that's not a word that is in our everyday vocabulary. Uh, if we uh, use the, see the word propitiation, it's not a word that's in our everyday vocabulary. It ought to make us kind of focus a little bit and see, okay, now what's going on here? Asking those questions, uh, those, those fine detail kind of questions. And again, looking at those first few verses in chapter 2, uh, looking at these fine details, therefore, you know, there's that common phrase, what is it therefore? If there's a therefore, you look to what's before the therefore. Uh, therefore, links to what has been said, and especially beginning in verse 27 of chapter 1, it links together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if there's any uh, encouragement or comfort in Christ, any consolation of love, any participation of the Spirit, he goes through, it connects to it. You have this link to what's been said. That's just a little tiny detail to pay attention to. And he says, if, it's conditional. Um, sometimes it means, um, and in this case it means since. It's kind of like a rhetorical question. We know what the obvious answer is. Since there is comfort, since there's encouragement, since there's participation, since there's affection and sympathy. You see what Paul's argument is here? He's not saying, do these, does Christianity have anything to do with it? He's putting Christianity as the, uh, the focus and putting what is to be done, his reasoning rests on the greatness of Christianity. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, that all rests in Christ. He says, if this is the case, if these things are so, or since these things are so, and then notice he has another repeated word, any, 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 any. And then he has an exhortation, fulfill, fulfill. And then he gives how? By being like-minded, by having the same love, by being of one accord or one mind. And then he gives this negative declaration, do nothing from selfish ambition. Never do this. Never do this. And then he gives a contrast. But instead of selfish ambition, instead of conceit, humility is the answer. Esteem others better than himself. He says, instead of doing, never do this over here. Always, always do this. Never conceit, never hostility, never ambition, always humility, always considering others above yourself. 
He says, isn't that what Christ did? Isn't that what I'm doing on your behalf? His joy was that the Philippians would be unified. He says of Timothy in this section, I have no one like-minded. And Epaphroditus almost died for their sake and for the sake of the gospel. Serving others, counting others as more significant than themselves. Looking at observing what is going on in the text, seeing the big picture and the structure and those fine details. And then you do switch to, uh, uh, you, you start looking at interpretation. And again, we've already given a little bit. These have some overlap. Um, interpretation, there's a lot of different uh, things in it, but basic uh, literary types. If observation is asking, what does the text say? Interpretation asks, what does the text mean? Uh, simply put, this is another uh, handout that we've had in the class. I'll just put it this way. Men, we do not read a love letter from our wives the same way we read a letter from the IRS. Do we? And if so, I have some questions. Different writings call for different ways of being read. And Scripture has different writings, different styles, different genres of literature that we honor intuitively in a lot of cases, and unfortunately some people will ignore in others when it's convenient for them. But Jesus, teaching in a parable, that is a different kind of form than a, his, uh, a historical narrative. Uh, um, uh, the um, Proverbs are a different form of writing than the book of Philippians. Although Philippians might have a proverb in it, the entire book is an epistle. It's a, a letter. It's an argument for something, uh, a, a reasoned, rational letter that's given to uh, a, a congregation or congregations or an individual. Um, uh, Philippians uh, to uh, the uh, Philippians, um, uh, the saints in Philippi. So you have these different ways that the Bible uh, utilizes literature, poetry. The Psalms are very poetic and beautiful uh, in the way they express ideas. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got parables, proverbs, poetry, all, prophecy is, is unique. The big one that I think is probably easiest to, to focus on, uh, apocalyptic literature, a lot of folks will go to the book of Revelation and start reading it and start trying to see things that are happening in our day and time and say, you see, this is, this is what Revelation was talking about. There's a couple of things wrong with that. The first is that the text indicates these are things which must shortly come to pass, but it says these are written in signs. It's apocalyptic literature. Your Bible may even say the apocalypse of John or the Apocalypse of Jesus, however your Bible puts that title on there, but it is signified. It is written in signs, and there's a very specific set of rules that are in place when you look, when you read this kind of literature. Again, that's why I said we don't read a love letter like we read a letter from the IRS. We read them very differently. But shouldn't we expect that? Who's the creator of language? God, thank you, yes. <laughs> the, God is the creator of language. Shouldn't we expect him to use all forms of it to the highest and most beautiful degree? 
And the Bible is a literary work, is a masterpiece. God perfectly uses language. Um, and understanding that can be really helpful in interpretation. Uh, but we've also got some specific keys that help uh, with uh, interpretation. Um, uh, toss those uh, up, up there on the, on the slide. We need to, uh, number one, uh, pay attention to the content. Again, observation. What uh, we can't interpret what we don't uh, know. Um, and uh, context, what's the book about? What's the literature? How does it fit in the Old Testament? If it's an Old Testament book, New Testament, how does it fit in the overall Bible? What uh, are the events surrounding it? Uh, comparison, you know, Scripture is its own best interpreter. Uh, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, culture, um, we could talk about each and every one of these that are listed up there, whether it be political um, or uh, otherwise, but I'll just focus in on, on religious Mount Carmel, why was that chosen as the uh, showdown arena when you had Elijah go up against the prophets of Baal? Why did Elijah tell them to go up to Mount Carmel? It was actually the home of Baal. The place where this uh, the showdown takes place uh, in uh, uh, 1 Kings uh, 16 is where Baal was supposed to be his strongest. And you have this event that takes place, uh, sorry, uh, 1 Kings uh, 17 and 18 in particular. Uh, 17, you're introduced to Elijah. 18, uh, you have uh, uh, the prophets of Baal and uh, Elijah. Uh, verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, uh, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have no, not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of uh, Asherah who eat uh, at Jezebel's table. This is Baal's home turf. And essentially, if God can defeat Baal on Baal's home turf, it becomes incredibly clear, incredibly clear, that it is the Lord who is God and not Baal. Those little details help us to understand certain pieces of why things happened, um, uh, but asking those questions and, and looking into what's going on, uh, content, context, uh, comparison, culture, uh, and then consultation. Um, this is something that uh, we want to do um, at the end of our study in a lot of cases. Uh, I heard a phrase once, and, and, and I loved it, so I stole it. Um, we read one book to believe. All others we read merely to consider in light of the one book. We believe and trust God's word. Uh, but things like Bible atlases can certainly be helpful to us 
Uh, things like uh, Bible dictionaries and encyclopedias, our elders encourage the use of our library here. Uh, we con consult with others, with each other. But that is a, a, a step to consider, but consultation, obviously it's put last for a reason. Because if we simply, you know, we say, all right, I need to know what 1 Kings 18 is about. Let me go get my commentary. It might help you a little bit. But that's not Scripture. What does God's Word say? We read one book to believe. All others are read merely to consider. And then obviously... Application. If observation is what does the text say, interpretation is what does the text mean, application, what am I supposed to do with this text? The text says and means just one thing. There's not a bunch of different uh, interpretations, but sometimes we will have multiple applications, won't we? Um, uh, we could probably ask our preaching brother here who, if he's ever preached a text but had a different application from the previous time he's preached the text. Absolutely. There can be different applications, but the text always means, interpretation, it always means one thing. So when we talk about application and what we've talked about in this class back here. And again, this is to build up families and to encourage them to study God's Word together in their homes, uh, parents and, and children and, and, and fathers and, and, and uh, well, yeah, fathers are parents, uh, husbands and wives, uh, to encourage them uh, to study uh, together. But it's, um, again, some fundamentals about this. Know, relate, meditate, practice. Again, you got to know what the text says. And you have to know what it means, but you also need to know yourself. You're asking the, session, the, the, the question, what am I supposed to do with this text? You do need to know yourself. And sometimes the answer is simple, I need to praise God. Sometimes it can be that, that wide. Sometimes it can be very specific. I should have done better at work yesterday. But we need to know the text and what it means. We need to know ourselves. And then it comes to relating. How does what God says in this passage relate to my personal life, my family life, my church life, work life, life when I'm at the store, life when I'm picking up pizza, and then meditating. Psalms begins talking about the blessed man who meditates Day and night, Scripture is something that should always be on our minds, going through over and over again. Uh, a lot of folks will tell you that the best cooked meals are the ones that take the longest. Crock-pot meals are amazing. Um, barbecue takes a long time. Meditation it's something that is a repeated thinking through, thinking on Scripture. And then practice. Matthew 7, 24 to 27, Jesus talks about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And he says, those who hear my sayings, those, those who hear these sayings of mine and does them, 
He is like a man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came and the floods came and all of that water and that storm beat on that house, it stood firm because it was founded on the rock. It was founded on Jesus and his word. But those who listen to his words and don't do them, they'll be like someone whose house is put on sand. And some of us here have probably seen the difference between a house that had a good foundation and a house that didn't. Because when floods come, that house is going down, and it'll go down quick. Where's your foundation? Practice hearing them and doing them, what Jesus would say. So that is a fairly quick overview of what we have been going over for the last several weeks. Again, there's a lot more detail than this. Um, but I wanted to give you just kind of a quick overview, our class, a good reminder, uh, what we're going to do for the rest of our time, talking about a method called the thematic method. So observation, interpretation, application, that's in all of Bible study, but there's various different ways people study scripture. Uh, sometimes you'll hear Andy preach a sermon and uh, he'll go everywhere preaching the word, so to speak. He'll go from Genesis to Revelation without ever leaving the pulpit. But other times, uh, Andy will hone in and talk about a passage, and he might bring in other scriptures from that, but he's honing in on one passage. There's different ways that we look at scripture, and there's different ways that we can study God's word effectively and carefully. Um, the thematic method, it's very similar to a topical study. You know, a topical study, again, very vague, generic definition. You go from Genesis to Revelation asking, you know, what does the Bible say on faith or something like that. And there's more to it than that. But a thematic method hones in on a specific avenue of that. Faith of the Jebusites would be an interesting, probably a short thematic study. Uh, faith of the Israelites would be a bit longer study. Um, but it's a theme within... Uh, a topic or uh, a section of scripture. So the pretty simple steps. You choose a theme, obvious. Uh, you list the verses that you're going to examine. Uh, you decide on the questions you're going to ask in the text. You ask those questions and write the answers. You draw conclusions and then you apply the study. And uh, last week for our class, if you guys remember, you were encouraged to look through the book of Proverbs and we honed in on one question. And this was the thematic study. Um, what are the traits of fools in the book of Proverbs? Yeah, that's a fun study. You realize over 50 times the word fool occurs in the book of Proverbs. And, well, no one talks about fools in, 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 a, in a kind light. At least twice in Scripture it does. Basically, uh, when the fool closes his mouth... <laughs> And when the fool isn't as arrogant as the other guy. Those are the only two times that they're talked about positively in the book of Proverbs. But Proverbs is all about wisdom and foolishness. And so asking the question, uh, what traits does a fool have from the book of Proverbs? We can learn a whole lot about that. And uh, I will ask real quick, uh, anyone in class, 
Uh, were you able to get around? We've got a lot of folks from our class gone, a lot of folks from this class gone. Did we have anyone who was able to go through Proverbs and, and, and dive into that? Not a problem. That's, I just wanted to check on that and give you, uh, you'd be able to say your answers and I'd repeat them so everyone could hear. But when you start looking through the book of Proverbs, I kind of narrowed it down to just a few, but there's a whole lot more than this. Uh, but when we talk about fools in the book of Proverbs, number one, fools hate knowledge and they only value or they value only their own opinion. Uh, look at a few of these, uh, these verses uh, turning to the book of Proverbs. And looking uh, just at Proverbs 1. In verse 7, Proverbs 1 and verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, notice jumping down uh, to about uh, verse uh, 22. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. Think about the, um, uh, the emphasis here on uh, fools hating knowledge. They hate knowledge. Uh, look at, um, uh, for example, uh, chapter uh, uh, 12 and verse 15, Proverbs 12. And verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. How about 15? Proverbs 15 and verse 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge. Not so, not so the heart's of fools. How about 18.2? A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. How about 28.26? Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So just kind of boiling that down, and there were a lot more that we could go through, but fools, they hate knowledge, and they value only their opinion. Look at 12, Proverbs 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Look at 13 and verse 16. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. How about 14 and 24? The crown of the wise is their wealth, but the folly of fools brings folly. How about 15 and verse 2? 
The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Look at verse 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. They feed on folly and they multiply folly. Fools are also dangerous and harmful back in Proverbs 10. In verse 14, the wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Proverbs 13 and 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 17, look at Proverbs 17. In verse 12, I like this one. Let a man meet a she-bear robbed of her cubs rather than a fool in his folly. You know how frightening that would be to run into a bear who is looking for her cubs who have been taken from her? He says that's a lot safer than a fool. It's a lot safer. How about uh, verse 21? He who sires a fool gets himself sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. A couple more very quickly. Fools spread lies and quarrels. Uh, Look at Proverbs uh, 18, uh, verses 6. Uh, Proverbs 18. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. And then we'll end with Proverbs 14 and verse 9. Fools spread lies and quarrels, but Proverbs 14 and verse 9. Fools hate God. Fools mock at the guilt offering. The upright enjoy acceptance. Those are just some of the traits of fools in Proverbs. It was a very quick thematic study. But we were able to answer the question to a degree, what does the book of Proverbs say are the traits of a fool? We went through quite a few. Like I said, over 50 times, fool is a word, uh, is, is emphasized in Proverbs. Ask the question yourselves. Bible study is so much fun. Thank you for your time and attention tonight. We are dismissed for a minute or two, and then we'll start back up.